Today at Reader's Corner, part two of an interview with Peter Robison, author of Flying Blind, The 737 Tragedy, and The Fall of Boeing. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner in the second part of our interview with author Peter Robison, the author of Flying Blind, The 737 Tragedy, and The Fall of Boeing. Two fateful crashes of the new Boeing 737 MAX in 2018 and 19 turned into one of the costliest corporate scandals in American history. Last week, we explored the broken corporate culture of malfeasance and greed that led to the tragic loss of the 346 lives of passengers and crew. If you missed it, you can find that interview on Boise State Public Radio website and the Reader's Corner app. This week, we will be exploring the causes of the crashes and the success and failure of accountability that followed. Peter Robinson is an investigative journalist for Bloomberg and Bloomberg Business Week. He is also the recipient of the Gerald Loeb Award, the Malcolm Forbes Award, and four Best in Business Awards from the Society for Advancing Business, Editing, and Writing. Peter Robinson, welcome back to Reader's Corner. Thanks for having me. Well, let's uh, jump right into the crash itself. If you could pick up the conversation by telling us what happened on that morning in Jakarta, Indonesia, October 18th, 2018. Describe what happened in the cockpit and the crash itself. So um, the, the 737 MAX was a new version of the 737. It was actually the fourth version of the 737 uh, since the that plane had come into service in the 1960s. So it was a plane that pilots thought they knew really well. Uh, and Boeing, in getting this plane certified, had asked the FAA and received from the FAA approval that pilots get only what's called level B training, uh, which means they could get trained on this plane in an hour um, on an iPad, uh, which pilots did in in large part. Uh, And this pilot training operation at at Boeing uh, had actually received from Lion Air a request uh, for, for simulator training on the 737, but Boeing, you know, so focused on this mission of, you know, this being a plane that's exactly like the previous 737, uh, internally called Lion Air idiots and and said they don't need additional training on this plane. However, uh, there was a crucial design flaw in in the plane because there, there was a dramatic change made to the flight controls. And the dramatic change was a, a piece of software called MCAS, the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System. And the, the idea was that, I should back up to say that the 737 MAX had larger engines, which were placed forward um, on the wings. So that changed the, the way it handled in, in certain turns. But Boeing found it, it, it tended to pitch up uh, in, in certain what pilots call tight high-speed turns. These are situations that you know most commercial jets are, are not in, but Boeing in, in meeting the regulations determined that it needed to add this software, which would smooth out uh, the performance of the plane and make it handle exactly like the previous 737. Uh, however, this piece of software um, was added late to the low-speed regime on the plane, uh, and it, crucially, it was tied to a single sensor called the AOA sensor, which measures the angle of the plane against the wind. Uh, and so when this plane took off, what appeared to be a plane exactly like the previous 737 
had this this feature which would take control of the plane unbeknownst to the pilots. So uh, soon after the takeoff, this AOA sensor happened to have a problem. Uh, it was registering the wrong altitude and that led to this software kicking in, which pushed the nose down and the pilots were, were not aware of what was causing this. And uh, over time, they lost control of the plane and it, it crashed into the sea. The CEO on duty at the time of the disaster is Dennis Mullenberg. Tell us how he winds up as CEO and anything else you'd like to share with us as to how this happened on his watch. Sure. So, so Dennis Mullenberg um, is somebody who's a Boeing lifer. He, he is somebody you would think is going to be perfectly in tune with, with those engineers who um, are focused on every detail. And, and in fact, he joined Boeing as an intern the, the same summer that, that Boeing had what people think of as a, a mea culpa. There was a crash of a 747 in Japan. Um, it was a terrible accident. And but Boeing within a month came out and said it was our fault that it, it was a, a a bad repair job at, at a Boeing facility and and that had led to a rupture in the plane's tail. So he came to a Boeing that had a real history of of integrity and um, taking responsibility, uh, especially for safety. Um, but Mullenberg came up through the ranks of a company, you know, as we talked about last time whose whose culture had had changed and and that culture rewarded profitability it rewarded meeting schedules uh it it rewarded uh it rewarded following the strategy that re- rewarded shareholders so after the indonesia crash dennis mullenberg essentially blamed the crash on the pilots they said that the chain of errors had started with maintenance crews who'd not noticed this flaw with the aoa sensor and and there was a complete lack of um, insight and a complete complete lack of uh, taking on a- any responsibility for itself or this idea that it had designed a flawed system. And this is even as pilots at American in, in one meeting that I describe in the book are, are telling Boeing that, you know, they would have had the same problems if they'd encountered that series of events on one of their planes. There was one pilot who told a, a top executive at Boeing that, you know, they would have had a real problem if they'd, you know, if this had happened on an American flight that was just taking off from Miami and uh, it had landed in Biscayne Bay. And there is a difference, I guess, in the safety records of Lion Air and Ethiopian Airlines. I think you point out in your book that Ethiopian Airlines was a very well-run airline and certainly couldn't uh, be charged with any kind of neglect here. Uh, yeah, there, there's, an, there's an interesting... Um, historic point on, on this one of um, Boeing's most famous engineers, uh, George Scherer talked about how it, it had always succeeded because after a crash, you know, the natural impulse is to call out PR, call out the lawyers, you know, say it was pilot error. And, and Boeing historically had not done that. It, it had taken re- responsibility and, and had taken ownership. Um, and what, what you saw immediately after the Indonesia crash was, was the opposite of that. And, and it was to the point that Lion Air CEO, uh, was, was taking the heat because as you point out, they, they did have a, a safety record that, that wasn't the best. Um, but, but he felt that Boeing had completely abandoned it as a customer. Mm-hmm. I mean, is it fair to say that, uh, while that, while Lion Air may have had, some safety issues in the past that had nothing to do with what happened in Jakarta on that fateful day. 
Yes, that that yeah. the, the 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 issue was that um, th- those pilots were not trained on that particular right. malfunction that happened to them. Yeah, and the charges that came forth, I mean, they they really seemed racist in a sense that uh, you know, well, we'll blame foreign pilots, and that that was picked up in the media. I think not that the media charged it, but the media just echoed what was said by Mullenberg and his crew. Um, I mean, that, that just really enraged me when I when I saw. Uh, these guys blaming pilots for something that was so obviously a flaw at Boeing. Yeah. And, and you, you had, again, that was brought up by the pilots at American in, in this meeting about a month after the Indonesia yeah. crash, they, they said, you know, af- after pointing out that Boeing would have had this real problem if, if it had, you know, crashed in Biscayne Bay, this pilot said, you understand what I'm saying, right? And the, and the Boeing executive answers, I do. I mean, they, they, in some sense, they knew that because this crash had happened in Indonesia, which didn't typically get the same attention internationally, that they had room to play with that, that they could try to, and Boeing immediately at the same time, it was blaming pilots. Boeing also went to work on a software change, but, but not with, not with any haste and not, not with, not with extreme haste and, and didn't, um, didn't, take up the pilot's recommendation that they ground the plane while they work on this software update. Um, so it, it both was something that they were uh, using this sort of these undercurrents of racism were helping their case uh, publicly. And I think also it was subconsciously affecting their own actions after that first crash. You're listening to Peter Robison. He's the author of flying blind, the seven thirty seven max tragedy in the fall of Boeing. Well, the other thing you just touched on, and I'd like you to maybe uh, offer a couple of more thoughts on it, uh, Boeing kicked into action immediately to prevent lawsuits. I mean, they were there in the airport in Jakarta, right? Right after, like maybe a day or so later, there they were trying to sign up passengers for those special deals they were going to get, which, of course, would uh, prevent a lawsuit, right? Yeah, I mean, this this was a really infuriating thing um, that I learned about as I was reporting the the book. And I talked with um, a couple of lawyers, one Sanjeev Singh in uh, the Bay Area and his partner, Michael Indrahana, who's Indian American. And um, after the crash, uh, Michael was hearing almost immediately from from relatives, friends of his um, in, in Jakarta who were saying they needed they needed help you know that that this something was wrong about what had happened and, and what the public story was um but at the same time you know within weeks of that crash there were agents on the ground who worked for the insurer who worked for Boeing who who were offering these blanket settlements to family members which was uh they were brought into a room uh told they couldn't take the document out of the room uh, and some of these families, you know, at, at, it was very costly for them to go to Jakarta to, to be there. And it was a tempting, you know, it was, it was $90,000, which uh, for a, a poor family, you know, might be hard to pass up. But the, the cost was that these families had to sign off any, had to absolve Boeing and the laundry list of other suppliers and, and insurers of any liability and give up their future right to sue. Do we have any idea uh, at this stage of the game what that $90,000 compares to in what a family might might have gotten in, in a lawsuit? Or are those still in the process? Well, I, 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 heard, I heard later that families, if they waited, uh, re- received uh, you know, well, well over 
a million dollars. And then there were additional settlements that were, were that one was that Boeing had offered families 146,000 a piece um, soon after the second crash. And then as part of the deferred prosecution agreement with the U S uh, there was a, a additional money of another million. So, so they're, so they're giving up a, a substantial amount from what the final settlement would have been. So Mullenberg is uh, on the hot seat here and he goes to Washington and testifies before Congressman Peter DeFazio, who chaired the U S house transportation and infrastructure committee. What did he have to say at that point? Well, Mullenberg uh, is, is part of the reason for his success is that he is very, um, he, he, he's very scripted, uh, for, for lack of a better word. He, he comes off as very poised, uh, which served him well before Boeing became an international news story. And at that point, it began to come off as more robotic. And he, uh, during the testimony, had clearly decided that he was going to mention that he came from Iowa re- repeatedly and that he grew up on a farm, which, which were always points that he mentioned uh, with, with great pride uh, before the crashes. So he mentioned that just one too many times for DeFazio. So, so DeFazio said, you know, you're not an Iowa farm boy anymore. You're, you know, you're the CEO of a global company. You're making a heck of a lot of money. Uh, and, and, and it, it, it was really a jolt. And, and that was something that uh, one of the victim's family members picked up on too um, afterwards. And she, she went up to Mullenberg and, and said, you know, go back to Iowa. Well, I'll tell you what burned me is when the CEO Mullenberg uh, is treated so well in compensation after the crash by board members, one of whom is Caroline Kennedy, who made $800,000 in two years serving on that board. And Ken Duberstein, the former Reagan chief of staff. I mean, you know, you, you just wonder, does anybody have control over the board? Uh, can the SEC do anything about who serves on that board? Uh, the board is ultimately responsible for for a CEO's actions and the company's actions. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the behavior of the board is um, is, is part of the issue here. And, and it's, it's something that has come up at many other companies, this, this problem of boards having these interlocking relationships and alliances and and a CEO serving on several other boards and it's a you know you scratch your back I'll scratch yours you know you scratch my yeah. back I'll scratch yours situation um and what what so what happened at Boeing is that you you had these these uh political and business elites who are on this board and they were just not paying attention to safety there was no committee as it came as emerged later there was no committee of the board that that focused on safety uh the the board after the indonesia crash didn't ask tough questions they had one optional meeting uh close to the thanksgiving holiday um dave calhoun who's currently boeing ceo and um after the indonesia crash was was the lead independent uh director he he made a lot of claims after the the opium crash that that the board had been very active and a, a a judge in a suit brought by shareholders uh said each of those representations was false that that the the board had been passive and had had not done its job so peter from what you learned has the has boeing taken care of the 737 max uh to the point where we can all feel safe flying on it would 
would you fly a 737 max these days? Well, I, I have not. And that that's partly due to the pandemic and it's partly due to this deep immersion in the story, uh, which yeah. has been frustrating and enraging. So it, it hasn't felt right for me to, to fly on it. Um, Boeing has fixed the specific problem with MCAS, uh, the software that fires in response to a single piece of bad data from the sensor uh, that that problem won't recur. Um, but in talking to many pilots and engineers, um, they, they think of the 737. It, it's the, the parallel they give is that it's uh it's like an old pickup or it's a classic car. Um, so if you have a pilot who's well-trained, who's flown it for a long time, um, it, it might be perfectly good. Um, but it's, it's not a modern car with all the automated features. It doesn't have the lane assist. It doesn't have the blind spot indicator, the rear camera. It, it, and um, so those, those are my thoughts on the, the 737 mm-hmm. and the Max. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there was, there was another issue that really, really concerned me as far as the Boeing situation is concerned. And and that's the way the decision was made to ground the 737 MAX. Uh, first of all, China, I believe, took the first action. Boeing didn't exactly have much to say about this in time. Uh, tell us the string of events that finally did lead to the grounding of the 737. Yeah, So so after the Second crash, China was the first to ground the plane. Uh, countries in Europe followed. Uh, Boeing was making the case that there was no need. And uh, the FAA was going along with that for more than two days after the crash. And, and it was finally, uh, the, the FAA got access to the telemetry data that proved without a doubt that, that the second crash was related to the first. Uh, and so finally the plane was grounded, but it, you know, one analyst I, that we talked to s- said that it was a almost unprecedented situation where you had, you know, countries around the world taking the lead and, and the FAA, um, is, is standing alone, not, not accepting reality uh, as quickly yeah. or in the same way. Right. You're listening to Peter Robison. He's the author of flying blind, the 737 max tragedy and the fall of Boeing. Let's talk about what I guess I would call the nuanced Boeing confession. Um, it seemed to leave out certain parties for one thing, uh, but uh, also you just really have to wonder whether they couldn't have been a little bit more forceful and honest up front about the way they handled that. Yeah, the confession changed over over weeks <laughs> and months after the second crash. It, it was... Uh, that um, it's part of a chain of errors and, and we're, we, we followed exactly the steps in our design and certification process that lead to safe airplanes, but there's always room for improvement. Uh, you know, Dennis Mullenberg, the CEO, said things like there was no technical slip or gap on, on Boeing's part. And then, then he started to say things like we own it, um, d- did eventually say we're sorry. Um, but even e- even during those congressional hearings we talked about, you still had Boeing saying, well, we relied on outdated regulations. Uh, and, and you still, you know, people that I talked to at, at the company and, and around the industry, there's still this grumbling that it's, it's, it's pilots, that this didn't happen on American planes. It's, it's foreign pilots, ultimately. So you, you do wonder whether the cultural reckoning that, that, that Boeing needs has really taken place. 
One father from Canada lost his entire family, young family, on the Ethiopian crash. Uh, he testified before Congress and called for the prosecution of Boeing and its executives. Did that ever happen? No, but Boeing as a company uh, has agreed that, that it's liable for the crashes uh, and, and and Boeing uh, reached a deferred prosecution agreement with the government that does not involve the top executives. In fact, that prosecution agreement specifically absolves the top executives and says that uh, these problems all relate to this pilot training operation we talked about and Ultimately, two technical pilots who liaised with the FAA and didn't give them complete information about MCAS. Uh, and, and one of those pilots, uh, his name is Mark Forkner, um, is scheduled to be on trial later this year. So when you say executives, the top, top executives have not, as that father was calling for, they've, they've not faced any personal liability. But this single, pretty low-ranking pilot is now facing the heat. And some people that I have talked to say that while he's, he's culpable, he, he could have raised his hand. Uh, he's, he's ultimately the fall guy for, for mm-hmm. a much larger corporate tragedy. Mm-hmm. You call CEO Mullenberg, the technocratic face of a deadly blunder. So what happened to him and, and those around before him, I should say, like McNerney, tell us where they are these days. Well, he, he uh, Mullenberg uh, did go back to the farm as uh, the <laughs> mother of one of the victims had, had yeah. urged. <laughs> he uh, he he has uh, seen a lot more at home in Iowa, and he's an investor in a company that's trying to be the Tesla of agriculture uh, in developing an electric tractor. Um, and he is involved in a SPAC of his own, so he has retained significant wealth from his time running the company as have uh, the other CEOs who sort of step-by-step created this, this company. Uh, they yeah. have multiple homes there. They, you know, Jim McNerney is, uh, has been chairman of the U S equestrian foundation and Dennis, uh, Harry Stonecipher um, uh, is living in a 6,700 square foot mansion in North Carolina with uh more than a dozen cats, according to their uh, the suit that he and his second wife uh, brought against the city to allow them to stay in the home, mm-hmm. with with to to allow them to keep that number of cats in the in the home. Well, let's talk about the law that was passed changing the FAA's authority, trying to bring back some of the regulatory authority that the FAA lost and was handed off to Boeing. The Congress passed a a bipartisan reform bill that that recognized that they'd gone too far only the previous year in in handing over authority to to Boeing. Uh, And so so this power to appoint the deputies was handed back to the FAA. uh, And the, um, as as I said, the uh, compensation based on meeting manufacturers schedules was ruled out. There, There is a requirement that Human factors need to be taken into account with with any design. Um, so those are all good things. That's all an improvement. Um, h- however, even recently, you, you've had the FAA raising concerns about the people Boeing has uh, appointed in those deputy roles. You know, feeling that Boeing is still appointing engineers without enough independence from management to, to those roles. And uh, there was one. Uh, whistleblower from the FAA who reached out to 
Michael Stumo is a father of um, one of the victims, Samus Stumo. And uh, this current engineer at the FAA said that one of his managers said that the, what people were hearing about in the congressional hearings and with the reforms was, was posing for the cameras that they should assume that nothing would change and they should go about business as they had previously. We talk a lot today about the lack of bipartisanship in public policymaking, but uh, in Washington, when it comes to the Boeing crashes, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas really gave Boeing a lecture on what it should have done and what could have been done better, did he not? Yeah, and, and that, to me, signals that there was a real problem here and and uh and everyone in congress you know even the, despite their ideology and their desire to, to push for uh out you know outsourcing government responsibilities to corporations themselves that, that, that there was still a recognition that there's a real problem here help us understand the power of the lobby for boeing in washington the number of people the size of the staff that must have had something to do with how things unfolded at the FAA, the way Congress viewed things. Of course, it didn't in the end because Congress ended up getting pretty tough on the situation. But uh, help us understand that, Peter. Yeah, as as, as part of this transformation of, of Boeing, it, it went from a, a company in Seattle, um, pr- primarily focused on manufacturing and, and especially commercial jetliners, to um, a massive player in Washington. It, it had businesses you know, stretching, still has businesses stretching from military to commercial to satellites. Uh, it's number two defense contractor. Uh, and uh, especially when you add McDonnell Douglas, uh, it, it just becomes a massive lobbying force. I charted, you know, the, the lobbying spending over the years in the book uh, and the, the, the number of lobbyists uh, in the hundreds um, so, so when you have a company like that, especially one that um, is is really the dominant manufacturer when it comes to exports, commercial aircraft are such big ticket items. Boeing is used to having its voice well heard in Washington, and mm-hmm. especially after the first crash, uh, Dennis Mullenberg pointed that out. He pointed out that uh, his his head of uh, lobbying in Washington was was all over it. And Boeing felt, as many people I talked to, uh, Boeing said that Boeing felt that it could manage any situation to its benefit. So how about Boeing today? Did it learn its lesson? Have things changed beyond the software? Does the culture look any different? Is it too early to tell? How do we leave this story, Peter? There's, it's it's hard to leave this story and feel that this company has has really taken a hard look itself, uh, taken a hard look at itself in the mirror, and that's because the person who was the independent uh, lead executive on the board, Dave Calhoun, uh, is now running the company. and And Dave Calhoun is a is a former executive at General Electric. He's another protege of Jack Welch. You know, the former speechwriter of Jack Welch said he's he's the guy most like Jack. So it's it's very hard to look at this company and say it has learned its lesson, especially when you do continue to hear those voices within the company that, that this was all an overreaction and, and uh, that this all comes down to a few foreign pilots. Mm-hmm. 
Well, Peter, I want to thank you for uh, your time here at Reader's Corner. When I first contacted you about doing this interview, I mentioned to you that I thought this book had Pulitzer written all over it, and I still believe it does. It's one of the finest treatments I've ever read of uh, a tragic situation uh, like this, and I want to compliment you on that. Of course, we've been talking about your book, Flying Blind, The 737 Max Tragedy and the Fall of Boeing. Thanks for giving us these two interviews, not just this week, but last week as well. Again, reminding our listeners that they can go to the Boise State Public Radio website and find Reader's Corner and download that first uh, show. And um, if they don't do it that way, they can also go and do it on our app, Reader's Corner. Thanks so much for joining us today at Reader's Corner. Thank thank you, Bob. So so honored to hear that. And and, uh, thank you for having me. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner.